Welcome to Against the Odds, the bi-monthly motivational podcast profiling the lives of those who have conquered in the face of adversity. Produced and presented by Philip Francis Anderson. A very warm welcome to the final part of this two-part podcast, Taking Steps, with my guest, Helen Sims. The Human Interest Motivational Podcast, in which I bring you amazing stories from amazing people from around the world. The Story So Far There were four different operations. The first operation was to do with my hip, because my hip joint was slightly out of line, and it meant that my legs turned in. So by the time I was ready for surgery, I was mostly in a wheelchair all day at school and the pain was getting quite bad. I was on a lot of drugs. I think I was on morphine for a fair amount of time and I was in and out of consciousness. I don't think I knew anything about the failure and success rate of the operation at that time. And and I think that 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 was obviously an element of, of the fear. I was frightened of being in worse pain than I was already. I wanted to be able to wake up and everything be okay again, but it didn't turn out that way. We conclude this two-part series with the final chapter in Helen's story on a somewhat sensitive and tragic subject, namely her miscarriage. When I had the second miscarriage, I'd had a pulmonary embolism about four months before that. On top of that, I ended up with something called hyperemesis gravidarum, which is a very, very severe um, form of morning sickness. Today, we examine her loss, as well as some of the pressing and practical questions around her disability and suitability as a potential parent living with cerebral palsy. Because I was a premature baby, there could have been issues with me not being strong enough to go full term. I would have probably had to have a C-sec because of my issues with my hips. When you imagine yourself as a parent, you know, it's all the sunshine and roses, isn't it? You never imagine the dirty nappies and the vomit. You always imagine the playing in fields and taking them swimming and you start to plan for things before you even realise you're planning for things. And what the future looks like for her now, 20 years on. Sometimes I tell myself, given the situation with the world now, whether I would really want to bring a child into the world as it is now anyway. And I've spent my life trying to make things right in myself and trying to focus on what I can do and trying to help other people. This is Against the Odds with Philip Anderson. There's a lot of reasons why it didn't happen. I have polycystic ovary syndrome and I have endometriosis. Even as young as primary school, I somehow knew that I I would never be a mum. I don't know how I knew that, I, I just knew that. It doesn't mean that I didn't want children because I did. The first miscarriage wasn't as traumatic and didn't feel as much of an issue as the second one, maybe because I hadn't had the chance to bond or anything. And the second one is probably the one I need to discuss more. 
yes, it is possible for me to conceive, but there are issues which mean that it would be difficult to go full term. And even if I did, there's things to consider after that. Maybe I knew that the disability plus the medical issues and the fact that I'm always tired and was always tired even back in those days. Maybe I knew that those things would be a factor later on. When I had the second miscarriage, I'd had a pulmonary embolism about four months before that. On top of that, I ended up with something called hyperemesis gravidarum, which is a very, very severe um, form of morning sickness. You'll know it if you know that Kate Middleton had the same when she was pregnant. It's very, very severe, and in my case, I couldn't keep anything down. Even water at that time was coming up. So there was a point where they were saying to me, will take you in and put you on a drip because there's nothing in your system. On the Sunday morning, I woke up and I, I just felt really strange. And I realized that then that something had happened. I couldn't even get from the bedroom to the bathroom very easily. It was at the point where I had to crawl because I literally didn't have any energy. I felt washed out. My body was heavy and it was horrific. It really was horrific. There was one moment when I stopped in the middle of the landing and I lay on my back and I felt so ill I thought I was going to die. I sort of half said to my baby, please, just just not be here. And then about a week after that, on the Sunday morning, I woke up and I felt different and I went down to my husband and I said, I think something's not right. Luckily, at that time, we'd had the early pregnancy scan booked in for the Monday morning. So we went to the hospital. They did the scan and they, they took us into a little, little room and they said, the pregnancy's non-viable. There's not very much placenta and there's no heartbeat. So it miscarried at that point. And the worst feeling around that, actually, given the previous week, and the fact that I had led on, led on my back on the, the landing and said, please just not be here. The worst feeling around that was the guilt because I had said that and then a week later it had happened. And I was, I was obviously on the warfarin at that time. They had said that if I had intended to continue with the pregnancy, then they would take me off the warfarin and I would have an alternative. I think the plan was that I go on to heparin, I think. but. All things considered, we had decided that a termination was the best option. But that's not what happened in the end. The miscarriage happened before we had really thought about when and where we, we were going to terminate it. it. It was a head versus heart decision because my heart would have probably wanted but there, there are so many things and so many risks and so many physical and psychological problems to overcome. Because I was a premature baby, there could have been issues with me not being strong enough to go full term. Had it got to that point, I would have probably had to have a C-sec 
because of my issues with my hips and also my my cervix is slightly tilted and i think that that would obviously be an issue in some ways it made it easier because it freed me from having to make a decision which would have been harder that when these things happen maybe they happen for a physical reason had i gone ahead with it as a result of the heg as a result of the warfarin as a result of goodness knows what maybe there would have been a problem with the baby anyway and also because i'm so small there that there was there would obviously a pro- be a problem with the size of my womb and how my body would cope with dealing with two lots of nutrition that then asks the question about whether further pregnancies had they happened would have been in a similar situation and i'm guessing that if it's happened once because of those factors then it might likely have happened again anyway when i when i first discovered i was pregnant the second time the doctor had said to me you would probably be hospitalized for the last couple of months at least of your pregnancy because your body wouldn't be able to manage the extra weight of a a baby i think they took me in on the tuesday after after the scan they had me in very quickly anyway within a, a matter of days to do the evacuation and i remember the nurse that was there said to me you know talk about something while the needle goes in so i talked about my wedding dress because we were due to get married the following year and when i came round after my surgery my 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 first thought was why did i talk about the wedding dress why did i do that when i should have been saying goodbye to my baby normally in the case of a an able bodied woman if you have a miscarriage they try to get you home as quickly as possible but in my case because of the complications i was in there another 3 days and the ward that i was on was directly above the neonatal ward so you could hear children crying and and babies crying and all that type of thing also there's other women on the ward that were obviously there for a while and they were pregnant or and that was really hard i don't think it had really hit me until i got home and um, then it all just sort of came out and i started crying and i couldn't stop crying you know it was a horrible time i went back to the gp for a chat actually because after all that had happened i still wasn't feeling very well and i just wanted to check things like blood pressure and stuff like that my heart was beating really quickly and he said that it might be a good idea for me to have some counseling so anyway i had 6 weeks of counseling after the after the miscarriage and um, the counselor actually suggested that i name the baby because it would then give an identity obviously i wasn't far enough along to know the, the gender conclusively my instincts tell me that she was a girl and i named her sophie sophie jean jean after my dad's mum 
but my my main priority at the time was trying to get through it we we just decided to take it day by day i mean obviously i was frightened because i, I was worried that it would trigger my depression again um but actually the strength kicked in in a way because i di- i didn't go into depression i just pushed through every day as best i could i did a lot of sleeping because obviously my body was quite tired having been ill with the heg anyway i had lost a bit of weight and my body just needed to recover from all that my mum was supportive and and i had a, a few good friends that that were wonderful obviously hubby did his best so yeah i was lucky there's lots of women who aren't so lucky i'm further through it and i'm nearly 40 I accept that that's the way it is, as much as I can ever accept it. Sometimes you think you do, and you're quite you're quite far forward and far, far through it, and then something little will happen, and it'll just bring it all back. The whole world seems to be geared around having children, and I suppose it is. But until you're in a situation where you can't have them, and it's not an option, you realise how much... It is everywhere. Adverts with nappies in it and friends on social media with their baby scans, as particularly at that time, because it was around about the time when more of my friends were having children. So, you know, there was a baby scan every other day. You know, you'd go to the doctors for a doctor's appointment and there's women with newborns. Or, you know, it just seemed that every time I managed to get on a bus, for whatever reason, there was a baby there. And then there's the friendship issue. I lost friends because I was totally unable to deal with the fact that my friends were having children. And it's something I really regret now, the fact that I didn't handle it all as well as I should have. I had a really good friend. She was amazing. We spent a lot of time together. She got pregnant. And the first time she got pregnant, she miscarried. So we bonded over that because I had been through it prior to her. We helped each other, I think, through that through that part. And then quite soon after that, she got pregnant again. And um, it was just too much for me to handle. I didn't handle it in the way I would have wanted to with hindsight, because I just think I was in my own private version of hell still at that time. And I should have been a better friend. I was in my early 20s and it just felt really unfair that that everybody around me was doing that and I still feel that. Oh Helen, thank you. We'll pause there for a moment I think and uh, I'd like to say thank you for sharing that experience with us and what can only be described as a painful chapter in your life. But we will be returning to this subject later on when we'll be looking at your legacy in honour of your unborn child. We planted a rose in the front garden, which actually flowers in June, which was the time that I had the miscarriage. So on the miscarriage anniversary, there is usually some pink roses that flower, which is quite nice. Like this podcast? Why not leave us a review? Just go to ratethispodcast.com slash against.
Well, coming up after the break, we'll be looking at another important aspect in Helen's life, namely her disability, and what role this would have played in her becoming a parent had her pregnancy gone full term. Against the Odds Celebrating those who have conquered in the face of adversity with Philip Anderson What have you achieved against the odds? Request to be a guest and share your story. Go to againsttheoddspodcast.com Hello everybody, my name is Aaron Richmond and I am the host of the Aaron's Opinion Podcast, the podcast for blind people where we speak about critical issues in the blindness community from all over the world. My podcast is a weekly podcast heard every Thursday at 1200 New York. You can listen to my podcast anywhere you would get a podcast or on Life Improvement Radio. Thanks so much. Help one person today. Help a million people tomorrow. Against the Odds with Philip Anderson. Makeup is fake. I'm real. Makeup makes my face easier to take, but I'm real. Why should I hide a blemish or a scar? Have they harmed me so far? Makeup is fake. I'm real. I've got a spot I may wish wasn't there, but it's not really me, it's society that cares. Makeup is fake, but I'm real. You say it gives you confidence when you look good, but who told you that you should? Makeup is fake, you're real. Why does it matter that you haven't got perfect skin? Because confidence, you know, it comes from within. Makeup is fake, but you're real. Yes, I have pride in my appearance too, I'm tidy and clean, but I am me, and I don't need to preen. Makeup is fake, I'm real. Be yourself, your lipstick is not what they'll remember. Hold your head up high, don't hide, and never surrender, because makeup is fake, but you're real. Thank you. My guest today is the writer and disability activist, Helen Sims. Helen, you'll notice I introduced this section with your poem, Makeup is Fake, which I felt was an excellent caveat as it sets the scene. Seen, I mean, rather well, in as much that makeup is often used to cover up people's imperfections. And I think it goes rather well with this whole issue of disability. People see people's imperfections before they see the person. And I know you've got some strong views on this, but when it came to you preparing for motherhood, when you found yourself with child the second time, how much of a factor did your disability play in your decision to become a parent? Was it something to which you gave your due consideration? It would be wrong of me to say that that wasn't a consideration because it was one of the main considerations. How could I be the type of parent that I wanted to be? How could I manage everything? And there was obviously the mental health side of it as well with the depression and the anxiety. that, That was a big factor too. So, you know, all those things had to be factored in to pretend that it isn't, particularly when you're in a situation where you are newly pregnant and you have to think about those things. For me to disregard 
disability would have been wrong because it's the biggest factor in my life. It was then. It still is now, really. I mean, back in 2005, I was a lot more physically able than I am now. But even in 2005, I wasn't as physically able as I would like to have been. And presumably safety was another important factor here. I can't guarantee that I would have been able to keep a child safe. And it's not fair, from my perspective anyway, to keep a child in a in a situation where they, they are somehow restricted because of my limitations. There's the issue of picking her up off the floor. There's an issue of protecting a toddler from getting themselves into things. There's an issue about being able to run quick enough to stop them sticking God knows what in the video player or DVD player. Or I'm not saying for one minute that, that people with disabilities shouldn't have children because I definitely don't think that. And I... I, I, I've got a lot of friends with disabilities who have had children. But, but for me, I think given the limitations physically and mentally, all those things went through my head. And w with the age gap between me and my husband, there would have been every chance that I would be, end up doing a lot of the childcare on my own. And yes, I probably would have had a very strong support network, but the emotional toll and physical toll that it would have taken on me, had it been medically possible, that was just too much for my, my brain to accept. Can I ask, was there ever any stigma around you having children as someone with a disability? I remember a conversation I did have with, with an older relative who I had talked to about it. And her response was, will they let you have children? And I think that says a lot about issues and attitudes around disability from previous generations' perspective. But there, there is still this otherness, there's still this, this they thinking that, that people with disabilities shouldn't have children, and that's rubbish. And the they being the system... They being the system, that they being society, they being goodness knows what. But there are so many perceptions around about people with disabilities that you would think had been taken away. I still get asked, can you have sex? I mean, of course, you know, this is, this is obviously without no, people knowing I'd had a miscarriage because, mm. you know, you can't do one without the other. Well, but, no. but there are certain people that, that think it's okay to ask a disabled person if they can have sex. Would they walk up to an able-bodied person and say, can you have sex? My son had it all the time when he switched from an independent school to a state school when I didn't realise the extent of the bullying that was going on because they'd found out his parents were both blind. And he said those were sort no, the sort of questions he got asked until he just turned around and said, well, don't your parents make love in the dark? Mm, exactly. Exactly. Certain people seem to think that we don't have feelings and needs like everybody else does. I mean, we do. And there are plenty of ways around all sorts of different issues. So, you know, but, but that perception, that prejudice, I suppose, is still in existence, which proves actually that we haven't moved that far forward at all, have we? Have there been any positives that have come out of all of this? 
in terms of your loss? I think I think there has been. I think that had I been able to to have a baby, I think I wouldn't have been able to spend the time that I have spent campaigning. Taking steps probably wouldn't have ever come to fruition. It has freed me up in a way to to focus on the things that I know I can do. In terms of, of, of my relationship with, with my husband, I think we obviously don't have the distractions of having to worry about somebody else and, and worry about how, how they're coping and, and what their future holds and, and that type of thing. And I think it's, it's good for it just to be us in a way. Sometimes I tell myself, given the situation with the world now and all the things that we're facing with climate change and with the economy and, and terrorism issues and all, all everything, whether I would really want to bring a child into the world as it is now anyway. And if I'm honest, I'm not sure that I really would. On the days when I feel terrible about it and, and it rips me to pieces, that logical side of me kicks in and says, well, hang on a minute, could you cope with with bringing a child into a world where there's so much uncertainty and so much overcrowding issues and, and climate change? You don't know what the future holds in terms of any of that. That is a coping mechanism for me. I can say to myself, well, hang on a minute, it maybe it wouldn't have been a wise move anyway given X, Y, and Z. And that's the important thing, isn't it? I don't think it's important what other people think. No. No, I don't think it is. I think if you can if you can make things right in yourself, and or at least try to, then it doesn't really matter what, what anybody people? else thinks. No. And I've spent my life trying to make things right in myself and trying to come to terms with everything and trying to focus on what I can do and trying to help other people. That is that that is what my life is. And if those things don't matter, then none of it does. As the quote I put up today in the group said, you know, there are times when people will forget what you've said, what you've done, but they won't forget the impact or the impression you've made on somebody. I hope that that's true. It's a Maya Angelou quote, isn't it? It is. And I think that that's always been one of my favourite quotes, that people will forget their physical things, but they don't forget how you make them feel, and I think that's really important. That's why I've always thought that connecting with people on an emotional level is the best way to do it. Well, thank you. And we're going to be finding out more about how you connect with people in a moment when we turn our attention to your next subject, activism. Just to let listeners know, if it is that you have been affected by anything you've heard in today's programme and would like further sources of support, then the Miscarriage Association Online may have what you're looking for. Just Google the Miscarriage Association. If you have a story of your own to share or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email info at againsttheoddspodcast.com. Or, for more ways to listen and to submit a guest request ticket online, visit againsttheoddspodcast.com. As mentioned, we're going to be hearing more from Helen in a minute when we turn our attention to another of her passions, activism. 
We find out what changes she's made and intends to make in a moment. Join our growing podcast community group on Facebook to connect with your favorite Against the Odds podcast guests and share your own story of the things you've achieved against the odds. To join, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Against the Odds Motivational Podcast. Against the Odds, celebrating those who have conquered in the face of adversity with Philip Anderson. Well, we now turn the spotlight on another important issue close to the heart of my guest, Helen Sims, the writer and disability activist, namely activism. Something, Helen, which you have been actively involved in for many a year, going back as far as when you were a teenager, campaigning on everything from welfare reform to disability discrimination. So just to set the ball rolling, perhaps you'd like to explain to me what it is that actually lights your fire. At the moment, there is a a big idea in society about disabled people being seen as scroungers, and there's a lot of doubt being cast about people with disabilities. And my life would be a lot easier if I didn't have to think about that side of it. Where does that stigma come from, do you reckon? I'm interested in that. It's Tory policy since 2010, isn't it? It's to do with their benefit fraud figures and their rhetoric that people who, who need help and, ha- and have various disabilities may possibly be faking. And, and, that has, and that has permeated so much of the rhetoric. And because it's happened in a very slow, slow, rip-drip type period of time, it's become part of things now. But the, but the Tory government, though, but the Tory government are looking at bringing about change to the social model of disability and how it's been perceived. I mean, they've just engaged a lot of people with disabilities in this major national survey to find out about how people with disabilities really see themselves and how they fit in with the wider brief, etc. And they are looking at making changes, are they not, to make you feel more included? Are you talking about the National Disability Strategy? I am indeed. Right. The National Disability Strategy, they say they consulted a certain amount of people. Did they consult you? you? No. Nobody consults me about anything, don't you know? They didn't consult Um, me either, but carry on. Well, no, the point is, when you think about the fact that there are so many millions of disabled people in this country. About 10 million. And and they say that they, they, they consulted X amount of thousands. When you consider about how many millions of people they are, there are, that's not enough. But also, the things that they said that they, they were going to put into the disability strategy, for example, the accessible housing, the different rules with, with relation to employment, the issues with transport, they said they were going to, to act on, um, for example, the access to trains and the so I take it all these things you've mentioned so far about housing, health and transport, they've the, renamed. The point is, they've the renamed. Point is no, well, the point is, this should have been done, Philip. Mm. It should have been done years and years and years ago. But they're doing it now. But, but, but yes, they're doing it now. Well, they say they are. But given 10 years of cuts and and pushing and and systematically what feels like pushing us out of society i think that this 
having having read the the, the national disability strategy because i did read it i feel that 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 it, it only goes so far i felt very much like the strategy was written by able-bodied people for disabled people the tory government introduced disability living allowance that was in 1992 under the john major um administration yes and 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 this lot of tories got rid of it and brought pip in which is which is very much harder to claim and pip has has been linked to various issues with the assessment not being um correctly carried out not taking into account people's medical issues or people's mental health issues um the the current pip situation as with the esa situation all that is down to a very it's it's a tick box system how easy was the transition for you then from disability living allowance to pip what was the transition like for you i spent years and years being frightened about the transition from dla to pip I, i i had nightmares i was terrified every time the letterbox opened that it was going to be my turn and this is me knowing the things I know about it and having been around it for the last decade, I was still terrified. They have disregarded so much specialist evidence. The DWP have overruled it and decided that it's not enough. I mean, if, if somebody's specialist consultant report, they have disregarded the medical evidence. What and was it like then for you then? Did you have to supply all your medical evidence? I did have to supply all my medical evidence. And did that, uh, I mean, was that forthcoming? Were you able to get access to all of that and get it to the right people? I, I, I was lucky. I did. But 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 that's because in my case, I kind of had 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 a good idea about what would be necessary. And I was very lucky in, in that my, my GP was, you know, aware of the difficulties not that GPs wouldn't be but that but they were very quick do you think your case was more clean cut then they gave me my PIP because I'm gobby and they gave me my PIP because they know that I will I have been to the press over issues and I have contacted my MP over issues and I have x amount of thousand followers on Twitter they they are aware of that fact and I think that that is why, at least partly, why I got the PIP. The, the way that they are doing it at the moment and the way that they've done it for the last decade is inhumane. And it, it's causing a lot of psychological and practical stress on people. It, it's causing people to commit suicide. It's causing people's mental health to decline. It's causing people to not be able to put food on the table. It's causing people who have life-limiting illnesses to die while they're still fighting to get their benefits reinstated. How is that acceptable in any way, shape or form? I'm sorry, it's not. I think it, it needs to be handled with a lot more humanity and a lot more compassion. The tick box system does not allow for that. And you can't treat people as if, if they're going to fit in boxes and their disabilities fit in boxes because well, they We're don't. talking of huge numbers of people here. It's difficult to show love to every millionth person 
on the planet. I'm not asking, nobody's asking for love. What what they're asking for is is a little bit of consideration. It's, we're, we're, I'm not asking you to gush over it and and be over empathetic and and you know what but I'm asking for is 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 a consideration for the the realities of of how this feels and how people have to live. That doesn't that doesn't demand much. They're making the money available. Are you basically saying how people apply for it should be changed? I think to a certain extent they've gone too far the other way. I mean, this government needs to be held accountable either way for what's happened. Really? I mean, yes. They haven't been held accountable for any of the DWP deaths. They haven't been accountable for any of the mistakes that they've made, really. Um, and I think what we need to do is put compassion back into the system. I'm not asking for it to go all the way where compassion and pity is all that they're taking into account, because I don't want that. And as you say, it wouldn't work. Mm. It would too much the other way. How or, does the manufacturer of a gun, you know, the gun manufacturers, sleep in the, you know, of an evening, knowing that, you know, the gun might have been misappropriated or misused in some way? Do you think they should be called to account because the guns ended up killing somebody? Well, no. Well... Yes, because they made the gun. But then but they also, should be banned from making them then, shouldn't they? But they're not. They've given license to make them. But the the person who manufactures the gun isn't responsible for what happens to it, are they? And that's what I'm saying. The government may have come up with the policies, but isn't it how people interpret the policy, how people react to a situation? Isn't the saying, it's not what happens, it's how you react to something that matters? Yeah, that is true. Helen, well, you won't believe it, but we're almost out of time on this segment. But we do have time to squeeze in one quick question. It's from a listener, Chris Nash, from New Malden in Surrey. Do you think that people are, at least in part, gaining a bit more understanding of cerebral palsy nowadays? With people like Francesca Martinez, who's a really brilliant comedian, and RJ Mitty, the actor who was on Breaking Bad... With them on our screens, uh, does it make a difference? It seems very different to when I grew up in the 1970s with people like uh, Joey Deacon being on Blue Peter and the result of that, although it was very well-intentioned, tended to be people being rather nasty in the playground the next day. Um, What would be the best ways to improve things moving forward and how do you think that other people, whether they've got CP or not, can actually manage to to progress things and make people understand things better. Thank you. Hi, Chris. Thank you for the question. In terms of a medical perspective, especially, there there is a lot more interest now in terms of children and how cerebral palsy impacts on children. Not so much with adults. There is so little research at the moment into how cerebral palsy affects adults Uh, there seems to be sort of a random cut-off point of about 18 after 18 they stop being interested in you and that's why there is still the assumption that cerebral palsy they call it a static condition but actually because of the wear and tear on the body 
there there is a lot of deterioration in terms of mobility and tiredness and and wear and tear on the bones and and that's something that I have personally found is a factor in terms of media perception I think that there is more media coverage of people with disabilities now than there was when I was younger but I think that there is not enough varied coverage at the moment there's a lot of representations of disabled people in wheelchairs and there's some people with autism but there isn't so much um, representation of people with invisible illnesses and invisible disabilities at the moment is it is all still quite stereotypical and I think that that needs to be broadened out and especially with soap operas there needs to be a much wider basis for including diversity in terms of disability and illness. The soap opera people particularly have a a responsibility to put that across in as many varied ways that they can, because these programmes do have a responsibility and do have a, a way to get messages across which doesn't happen otherwise. I hope that answers your question okay. Thank you, Helen. And to you, Chris, for sending in the question. And in a moment, Helen, we're going to be playing out with your legacy in memory of your unborn child. We've been discussing throughout the course of this programme and your legacy track. But I would also like to take this opportunity of thanking you for appearing on Against the Odds and for acquitting yourself exceptionally well. You've overcome so much and it's all down to your determination and the power of the human spirit. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. If you have a story of your own to share, or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email info at againsttheoddspodcast.com. Or for more ways to listen and to submit a guest request ticket online, visit againsttheoddspodcast.com. And if it is that you require any further sources of support or you've been affected by anything you've heard in today's programme, you can always contact the Miscarriage Association. You'll find all their details on their website. Stay tuned because in a moment we're going to be playing out with Helen's legacy, as I was saying earlier, and her legacy track. That's after this. Like this podcast? Why not leave us a review? Just go to ratethispodcast.com slash against. Against the Odds. Celebrating those who have conquered in the face of adversity with Philip Anderson. We planted a rose in the front garden, which actually flowers in June, which was the time that I had the miscarriage. It's pink. It's a similar pink to the the pink that was in my wedding bouquet when I got married, like a pale pink colour. I like pink roses, I really like pink roses. Obviously I like red ones too, but I prefer pink. You can't always smell it, it depends which way the wind's coming. Sometimes if you go out my front door in the evenings, you can smell just a tiny hint of the rose fragrance, yeah. 
it's nice to have something that still grows when something like that has happened. It just gives you a space to kind of go and, and, and think about things if you want to think about things. And if you don't want to think about things, you can just think about how lovely the roses are and just take it in isolation of the reason why it was there. Some days I think of it as just a rose, other days I think of it as Sophie's rose. I sing to it. I love to sing. I did sing to her and I did talk to her and so I suppose it still seems like something that's a good idea, aside the fact that I think it helps them grow. As traumatic as my pregnancy was, and as difficult as the issues around me having children was, I would never want to pretend that it didn't happen. Because it did happen. And I was somebody's mum for 12 weeks. And I think that it's important that I remember that there, that there was something possible like, out of that. I mean, there are moments when I might imagine what she might have looked like as a little girl or a toddler, but I think she stayed a baby, really, because there's no way of really knowing what she would have looked like, so it's all imagination and creativity, isn't it? I mean, she might have had my wonky eyes or my button nose, or she might have been lucky enough to get my hair. I think there was one year where it came out really late and I wasn't sure if it was going to come out at the right time. But aside that, there are times when the leaves have looked a bit brown or they, they haven't looked as healthy as they would usually look. And I do worry about it then. Having said that, it always seems to, to keep flowering. So if there is a reason why those leaves are brown or a little bit blotty or whatever, it seems to be coping perfectly well with those problems. I think everything symbolises something for me because I'm a very logical person on one hand, but then because of the creativity, I'm always making connections with things. So I think, yeah, I think the fact that it keeps flowering despite various issues to start with, I think that's quite a, a bit of a strong message, isn't it? You just have to allow yourself to feel what you feel. There isn't any right or wrong feeling about dealing with these things. And then there's not a time limit on it because every person's different. That goes with miscarriage. It goes with accepting disability or dealing with disability. We're human beings. We're not meant to do things in, in rigid ways. To say, oh, you should be over it by such and such a date. I'm sorry, but it doesn't work that way. The rose was something necessary that I did in the year afterwards. The something good has got to come out of something bad. So the rose is the good thing that has come out of all that stuff. It actually, in some ways, enabled me to move forward because it, it, it kept going. And it kind of tells me to keep going. Even if on some days it feels difficult. You just got to think, well, one day at a time. And
now have reached out a moment in the podcast where I hand over to my guest once again for them to play out with their legacy track. This is a track which they have chosen, which they feel best sums up their life. Helen. It's called Defying Gravity and it's from the musical Wicked, but this is actually the single version. So it's by Adina Menzel and it's it just about sort of sums everything up for me. Something has changed within me. Something is not the same. I'm through with playing by the rules of someone else's game. Too late for second guessing. Too late to go back to sleep. It's time to trust my instincts. Close my eyes and leave. Thank you for listening to this edition of Against the Odds, the bi-monthly motivational podcast celebrating the lives of those who have conquered in the face of adversity, produced and presented by Philip Francis Anderson. Whether you have a story of your own to share or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email info at againsttheoddspodcast.com or visit www.againsttheoddspodcast.com for more information and to submit a guest request ticket. This podcast is the property of Philip Francis Anderson. All rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the contents in any form is prohibited other than the following. We welcome you to download and play the podcast and share with others for personal use. Please acknowledge Against the Odds motivational podcast as the source of the material. You may not, except with our expressed written permission, distribute or commercially exploit the content.